Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. A quick heads up, we're about to talk about a Supreme Court case that acknowledges the existence of sex, reproduction, and birth control. Nothing too detailed, but if you've got young ears around you, you might consider skipping this one. All right, here we go. Conversation at the dinner table is very important, and there are many topics that you cannot speak about, so we'll talk about those first. There are several basic rules of thumb when it comes to good table manners. Be nice about the food, elbows off the table, and avoid the following subjects. I recommend that you do not talk about politics, religion, death, bereavement, or anything that's too spicy. I found a whole series of etiquette lessons online, and now I am finally a lady. Uh, But I digress. You'll notice that the last of the Forbidden Realms was so taboo that it could only be hinted at. Anything spicy. May I hazard a guess? Please. Because I'm thinking she doesn't mean chili peppers. Right. I'd say that anything having to do with sex at all is a big no. I'd say you're right. And anything having to do with the politics of sex may be an even bigger no. But I'll tell you where we do talk about it in these United States. The Supreme Court. Civics 101, I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And today we're covering a case that decided what we're legally allowed to talk about and do when it comes to a certain spicy subject. The year is 1965 and the case is Griswold v. Connecticut. This case paved the way for reproductive privacy in the United States. It's the reason that you're allowed to talk about birth control, let alone buy and use it. This is the case that kicked the federal government out of our bedrooms. Now, 1965 in the United States, we're talking major clashes and major change. The president is Lyndon B. Johnson, beginning his first full term after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. The Vietnam War is raging as our anti-war protests. You can end the war! Not another time for this war! This is the year Malcolm X is assassinated. We must be prepared to defend ourselves or we will continue to be a defenseless people at the mercy of a ruthless and violent racist mob. The year 200 Alabama state troopers attacked unarmed peaceful civil rights marchers in our own bloody Sunday. The year of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. We are in the midst of the Cold War, the space race. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. And in the midst of all of this is a woman who's trying to get in trouble with the law. The effort to change morality laws by breaking them is still going on. The latest case in the state of Connecticut. We are continuing, maybe illegally, but we are continuing our program of education and referral. Estelle Griswold, executive director of the New Haven, Connecticut Planned Parenthood Clinic. An old Comstock law making it a crime to practice contraception is still on the books. See, Estelle, along with a doctor from Yale. Dr. C. Lee Buxton, chairman of the obstetrical department. They wanted to challenge a law. And to do it, they needed to get arrested. We issued two warrants, one against Estelle Griswold and the other against Dr. C. Lee Buxton. The remnants of Comstockery, constitutional liberties, and the moral principles of several religions met head on. Wait, hold on. These providers 
Griswold and Buxton are violating comstockery? What does that even mean? Well, to answer that, we're going to have to go back a bit. How far back are we going to go, Hannah? This story technically begins nearly a hundred years earlier. Not in Connecticut at all, but in a little city called New York in 1873. Now here is a place I know a little bit about. You got tons of wealth, even more poverty, grand mansions going up next to overcrowded tenement blocks. Uh, Anti-immigrant sentiment was huge. And you're at the height of Victorian morality, this idea that there is a proper way for women and men to behave. So think not gambling, drinking, or having premarital sex. While at the same time, gambling houses, saloons, and so-called vice workers, aka sex workers, were all over the city. And into this land of great wealth and poverty, morality and vice, sunlight and shadow, walks someone by the name of Anthony Comstock. The inventor of Comstockery, I'm going to guess. That's right. This is where it starts. Comstock was a poster child for Victorian morality, the ultimate anti-vice torchbearer. He considered gambling, prostitution, pornography, erotic literature, contraception, and abortion to be obscene. And he wanted all of it eradicated. So he gets busy lobbying Congress to pass a law that will keep Americans moral. And it works. Or at least passing the law works. That same year, 1873, Congress passes the Act of the Suppression of Trade and Circulation of Obscene Literature and Articles of Immoral Use. So the obscene literature thing kind of speaks for itself, but what do they mean by articles of immoral use? The Comstock laws were federal laws that made possession and distribution of information about birth control a violation of pornographic laws, of pornography laws. So it treated these materials as smut, as dirty, as erotic, rather than as a health care. This is Renee Kramer, law professor at Drake University. Hold up. How widely available was birth control before this law? Well, here's what's amazing. From about the 1920s to the 1950s, before the Comstock laws made it illegal, people would buy their birth control from the Sears and Roebuck catalog. They would buy their birth control in the personal aisle at the five and dime. So birth control goes from dime a dozen common to intensely stigmatized. And the reason the setting is important for this one, by that I mean New York City, high rates of immigration, lots of poverty, lots of bigotry, is that this law had a target audience. This was also tied to eugenics. This is also very clearly about which women should reproduce. Middle-class white women should reproduce. Immigrant women should not reproduce. Poor women of color should not reproduce. Poor white women should not reproduce. They weren't being policed in this way at this time. This was middle-class and upper-class women who would have had access to private doctors who could give them prescriptions to birth control. And the state had a very formative interest, the nation state, in making sure that they reproduced. It's sometimes called positive eugenics. Eugenics, by the way, is the study of how to make sure people with, quote, desirable characteristics mate and produce children. The idea is to improve the human race, but the fine print is that it's about racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, and ableism. So Comstock was making sure that those people who could have had access to birth control or knowledge about it didn't, and making sure that people felt 
dirty and obscene for wanting it. Anthony Comstock got his way. And then states across the country created their own specific versions of the law. But Connecticut took it a step further and they just completely forbid the use of contraceptives. This is Elizabeth Lane, professor of political science at Louisiana State University. Now, as early as 1878, people were petitioning Congress to please repeal the Comstock Act. Unsuccessfully, I might add. But as time wore on, doctors started to push their luck with it. And one of the first cases actually was in 1938, and a birth control clinic opened in Waterbury, Connecticut. They basically operated kind of unnoticed, right? They just did their thing thinking that, well, perhaps this law has a medical exception. What counts as a medical exception? These doctors were thinking that women who had complications in past pregnancies or whose lives could be threatened by pregnancy were maybe exempt from this anti-birth control law. They thought wrong. In 1939, the following year, that summer, the Waterbury kind of clergy members got together and they basically said, this is a clear violation of the law. The police need to do something about it. And the next day, that clinic was raided and the two doctors and the nurse who worked there were arrested. And so that was the state of Connecticut v. Nielsen. And the Supreme Court of Ayers um, ended up upholding the law. A couple of years later, another doctor went looking for more clarification on the medical exemption question. He basically went before the Supreme Court of Ayers in Connecticut and was like, so there is no medical exception? Kind of basically clarifying. And they said, yes, we there is no medical exception to this law. Birth control is not allowed to be used in the state. And this doctor is like, seriously? There is no situation in which a medical doctor would be allowed to help a patient prevent pregnancy? He appealed that decision to the Supreme Court, but of course the Supreme Court doesn't rule on hypothetical cases. At that point, that doctor hadn't been prosecuted in any way for providing birth control to a patient, so he did not have standing for the Supreme Court to rule on his case. Medical providers, Planned Parenthood in particular, are coming at this problem from various angles. Well, the Planned Parenthood League of Connecticut had been working since that case in the 1930s at every legislative session to have someone introduce an amendment to that law from the 1800s to allow birth control to be used especially for medical reasons, and they had been unsuccessful. The legislature was actually where Estelle Griswold, again, executive director of Planned Parenthood in Connecticut, started. Before they got anywhere near trying to get arrested, she and Dr. Charles Lee Buxton went before Connecticut lawmakers. Dr. Buxton, how did you become involved in this birth control case? He was the chair of the OBG YN, the obstetrics and gynecology department at Yale Medical School. She arranged for him to testify. I'm prevented from taking care of patients the way they should be taken care of by a law that exists. I just happen to believe something ought to be done about it. Nothing changed. So you've got a law based in this antiquated notion of Victorian morality in the midst of the 1960s, one of the most tumultuous and freewheeling decades in world history. Anthony Comstock truly got the most out of his legacy. They started thinking, and that's when they met up 
with Fowler Harper, professor at Yale Law School. And he happened to specialize in family law. And this is where kind of the litigation strategy began. So Griswold and Harper start looking for a way to challenge the law. And they're thinking, okay, married couples have the best case here because we know it's a bridge too far to ask the court to rule on an unmarried woman who may need to use birth control. And they find three married couples, either for whom the pregnancies had been life-threatening for the mother, or whose children either did not survive very long, had major disabilities, or had been stillborn. And they challenge this Comstock law in the state Supreme Court, and the court says, sorry, that ban on birth control applies even if you're married, and the pregnancy is life-threatening. So Griswold and Harper appeal their case up to the Supreme Court. This case is called Poe v. Ullman. Once the case got to the United States Supreme Court, they said that there was no controversy because neither the doctor who prescribed the birth control, Dr. Buxton from Yale Medical School, nor his patients had actually been prosecuted. And so basically the Supreme Court said, well, you don't have standing, nor do we think that it's really realistic that anyone's going to be prosecuted moving forward. Ergo, we can't rule because nobody actually got in trouble for breaking the law. And it doesn't matter in the first place because who bothers enforcing this law anyways? Estelle Griswold was like, well, if that's the case, great. We'll start opening clinics all over the state. And if that's not the case, not great, but then at least we will have standing to try to take this case before the Supreme Court again. And so that's what they did. So Estelle Griswold's like, don't mind me, officer. I'll just be over here breaking the law over and over. November of 1961, they opened their Planned Parenthood clinic in New Haven, Connecticut. They were open for 10 days, prescribing contraceptives and birth control to their patients. And then they were shut down and prosecuted for violating the law. The difference now is that Estelle Griswold very much did get in trouble. The case has standing. And attorney Thomas Emerson is the advocate in this case. And he's before the court and he starts arguing on a First Amendment basis that you can't constrain what a doctor says to a patient. Are you coming back to your First Amendment argument? If not, I wanted to ask you a question. Well, I'm, I'm not getting far on any of my arguments, <laughs> but, uh, uh... And then he goes for a 14th Amendment basis. Uh, let, let me just outline the argument on, uh, on due process. Uh, this argument that we have liberty located in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment primarily, and this liberty gives individuals the ability to make their own decisions with regard to using contraceptives. So they're arguing on a First and Fourteenth Amendment basis. Those aren't the two I think of when we're talking about privacy. Well, what happens is at the last minute, Emerson finds an article in the New York University Law Review that focuses a bunch on the Ninth Amendment. And Emerson is like, huh, that could work. Uh, Certainly the Ninth Amendment meant to reserve some rights to the people, and if there's any right that you would think would be reserved to the people and which the government should not interfere with would be this right, yes. And so at like the 13th hour, they ended up including those Ninth Amendment arguments in their brief as well. And as it turned out, that was quite effective. See, the Ninth Amendment tells us that just because something is not in the Constitution, that doesn't mean that it is not one of our rights. And that kind of 
like unlocks a right that the Supreme Court had been thinking about quite a bit lately, specifically four years earlier in a case in 1961. In a little case called Map v. Ohio, right? A case that hinged on an unspoken right to privacy. Right. Here's Renee Kramer again. Douglas wrote the majority opinion. There were two dissents, but Douglas didn't even really want to think through the First Amendment claim. He does a bit, but he says the most important thing here is that we actually have a right to privacy. And this line is why Griswold is so important, because up until Griswold versus Connecticut, privacy doctrine rooted in the Fourth Amendment was all about matters of criminal law. So that's the development of privacy law. And here, Douglas says, you know, there are these zones of privacy, these spaces that the state shouldn't enter. And two of those zones are implicated here. One, the marriage. There's a point in his decision, he calls it the sacred precinct of the marital bedroom. Oh, that phrasing, the sacred precinct of the marital bedroom. And marital seems like the operative word here. Oh, very much so. Because this is also about any time a woman in Griswold is making a medical decision, she's making it in consultation with her husband, who is a man, and with a doctor, who is a man. So these are rights of privacy whereby men are empowered to tell women about their health care options and women are empowered to act on them. So the zones of privacy of the marital bedroom and the doctor's office are the places where women can exert that autonomy, but they're both really bounded places. And Douglas is clear on it. I mean, this is a sacred precinct. This is God-ordained. This is marriage. The court is ruling in a 7-2 to two decision that, yes, a doctor is permitted to talk about the spicy subject of contraceptives with a patient when it involves the protected private space of the marital bedroom. Basically, this is a right reserved for married couples. Still, this ruling reveals this new power of the right to privacy. Justice Douglas writes that privacy has something called a penumbra. Penumbral is a great word. It can be a confusing word, and I think of it in two different ways. An actual penumbral is like a candelabra. So a penumbra is the light that is shed by a flame. So it's the opposite of the shadow. It's what's illuminated by a candle. But I also like to think of a penumbral right as an umbrella. It's the umbrella you stand under in order to not get wet, <laughs> to, in order to get out of the storm. So you imagine this married couple walking into their doctor's office saying, we do not yet want to have children. And they're holding their umbrella. And the doctor says, hey, come under this penumbral right of privacy. Step in under this with me. I can give you this information because the court has now said this little area, this little light illuminated by the flame is a zone of privacy. And you can have private decision making control in this area around this part of your reproductive lives. So the penumbral right of privacy is articulated in Griswold starts to open up this range of spaces. It starts to illuminate different zones of privacy where people can make reproductive decisions and eventually where people can make um, sexual and intimacy decisions beyond birth control and abortion, but onto areas of um, same-sex couples, same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage, but also interracial marriage earlier, way earlier than those became legal. So first, the Supreme Court reveals this unenumerated right. And then they say, hey, by the way, this thing lights up. 
making it a lot easier to see what else falls under the right to privacy. Please listen carefully. The right of Richard and Mildred Loving to wake up in the morning or to go to sleep at night knowing that the sheriff will not be knocking on their door or shining a light in their face in the privacy of their bedroom for illicit cohabitation. The Eisen said is what gave the people of this state and across the country the right of privacy to birth control. The decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. This is a gay rights case as well as a privacy case. And I think in that respect, Justice Scalia, with whom I do not always agree, was right. It's the most important gay rights ruling ever, and it's the culmination of decades of legal battles. It comes from a Supreme Court that just 30 years ago said gay people could be punished as criminals. Now to that historic Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage across the land, and it's profound. The 5-4 to four vote, in many ways reflecting the huge societal shift of the last 20 years. The president saying today there are days like this when that slow, steady effort is rewarded with justice that arrives like a thunderbolt. That does it for Griswold v. Connecticut, but that does not do it for its impact. Ruling on a married couple's right to privacy soon led to Eisenstadt v. Baird, which ruled that a single woman has a right to privacy when it comes to birth control. And of course, one of the most hot-button privacy cases in modern history, Roe v. Wade, and a woman's right to privacy and choice. So naturally, we're tackling that on Civics 101. This episode was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with Nick Capodice. Erica Janik is our executive producer, and our team includes Jackie Fulton. Music in this episode by Joel Cummins, Nangdo, Lobo Loco, Ketza, Juanitos, Jazar, Croander, and BioUnit. Just a reminder, our student contest is still going on. It's called There Ought to Be a Law, and we want to know what law you would propose to fix a problem in your school, town, state, or country. You've got until the end of this month, March 2021, to submit your idea via voice memo or video. All students of all ages welcome. Check out the deets at our website, civics101podcast.org.